become a patron of Entertainment Landfill. Go to patreon.com slash landfill for details. Entertainment Landfill is made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you. Greetings and smell mutations. I am the TRS-80 or you can call me Dungeon Master. Do you guys remember that Saturday morning cartoon? The show focuses on a group of friends aged between 8 to 15 who are sucked into the realm of Dungeons and Dragons by taking a magical dark ride on an amusement park roller coaster. Upon arriving in the realm they meet Dungeon Master named for the referee in the role-playing game who gives each child a magical item. That shit was evil yo. Corrupting children and teaching them black magic and the dark arts. It was awesome. By the way, what kind of D&D character is an acrobat? Has anyone ever rolled an acrobat? Give me a break. Well anyway, what was I here for again? Oh yeah, it's time for Entertainment Landfill News with your host, the Jstrom. presents Landfill News with your host, the Jaystrom. Now, here's your host, the Jaystrom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am the Jaystrom. It is time for Entertainment Landfill News, and welcome to the landfill. Let's get down to it, shall we? It's time for some entertainment news. We got a little bit of film over here. Maybe some uh, TV shows. Maybe a little bit of video games. Stuff like that. But guys, thank you so much for tuning in live. I wanted to welcome everyone in the listening auditorium, as I call it. The chat room of Mixler. We got Brandon, Kai, and John. Check it out, man. Guys, thank you so much for listening live. I appreciate it. Um, I have been playing lots of No Man's Sky. Not as much as I want. I can get in one to two hours here and there. I can't really... I think some people have already, like, gotten to the center of the universe, which, you know, you're trying to do in the game. I can't play it for 12 hours in a sitting, but, (laughs) you know, I just finally got an Atlas Pass for the first time. My first Atlas Pass today, just to let you know. Some people got that shit on the first day. I haven't been through a black hole yet which sounds really awesome i can't wait to do that but i'm having a lot of fun it's a neat game cool flying around the universe in a spaceship love that i do have a few uh problems with the game and this has to do with something that they can fix in a patch and that is that the game crashes quite a bit like it just stops working It goes to, it's not the same as the blue screen of death on a PC, but it's the PlayStation blue screen saying there was an error. (laughs) So you do get a blue screen of death in a way. Um, And it, there's, there's no way of knowing what's going to trigger it. Like you'll just be playing, everything's fine. And all of a sudden, ah, and you'll lose whatever you're doing. 
So basically, everyone knows who plays to sh- save the game all the time, and you can only save it by different, uh, camp- you know, different encampments you find, different little things. There's these little towers you go up to and save the game. So every time you're on a planet or whatever, just friggin' save the game like clockwork and that's what i've been doing luckily i haven't I, there was a couple of times that were i mined a lot of stuff and uh, then i got the blue screen and i was like oh no and i had to do it over again that's pretty annoying but nothing major got messed up the game's a lot of fun i've never heard of a game crashing that much on a console at least none i've ever played um you know there there are times like on the xbox it would freeze up probably because of heat issues or something on a game, but nothing where every single time I played it, I knew at least once it was going to freeze up. Okay, to give you an idea, I played it for one hour today. I was like, I have one hour to do. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna warp over here and uh, whatever. It crashed on me three times in an hour. That's bad. Isn't it? And frustrating. Three times in one hour. Good lord, man. And there's nothing you can do to prevent it. You just don't know when it's going to happen. So that kind of sucks. But guys, thank you so much for tuning into Entertainment Landfill all these years. This is the 11th anniversary month of Nowhere in Mulberry slash Entertainment Landfill. Way back in 2005 in August... I was like, you know, I had heard about this podcasting thing. Uh, Leo Laporte had started his Twitch. Tw- no, wait, I'm sorry. Twitch is a different thing. He started Twit This Week in Tech, a uh, podcast. And I remember at the time, you know, G4 had taken over Tech TV. So all those people didn't work there anymore. And so it was a cool way to listen to all those people who were on the screensavers and stuff like that. So so uh, I was like, hey, what is this podcast? It's basically a sound file you can subscribe to and it'll show up in your iPod every week on iTunes. I was like, oh my God, that's such a cool idea because I've always wanted to do a radio show type of thing. And that's how Nora Mulberry uh, was created way back when... You know, I used to hit the record on the cassette. My sister Vanessa and I would come up with goofy skits or whatever. But, you know, we would pretend to be Star Search with Ed McMahon and goofy uh, people auditioning for that. I don't know. We were bored. (laughs) But we would do fake radio call-in shows and she'd be the, the radio person and I'd call in with obnoxious things. But it was fun times. But... I knew when I created a show, I wanted to have lots of sound drops and clips from TV shows and stuff. It took me a while to figure out um, how to do the drops and stuff. Like, at first, it was just like, oh, I'll take a million clips from all sorts of different shows and movies and stuff like that. But after a while, uh, we figured out that it would be cool to make drops of the that specific episode of TV shows and movies that we covered that week. And then over time, we'd have a million drops. And uh, I literally do have over 8,000 sound clips. It's ridiculous. But um, I've loved doing the show for 11 years. It's changed a lot since that time. I mean, Bill, Stephen, and I, we don't get together as, you know, we haven't been able to get together every Friday 
like I've wanted to. I'd love to go back to that. I'd love to cover shows again <laughs> and make clips and stuff. Sometimes there's not enough time for that. But I am enjoying doing this show, Entertainment Landfill News, where I could talk about, you know, news stories and stuff like that. Because it drives me crazy. <laughs> Uh, these ridiculous news stories. There's some good and there's some bad. Um, I was checking out io9 if, uh, website. Uh, this movie called Sausage Party recently came out. It's an adult cartoon by Seth Rogen and other people. And it's not for kids, even though it's computer animated and it looks adorable. And... Uh, I heard him on the Howard Stern recently. He was talking about how low budget the film was. They actually didn't spend a lot on it. So whatever they make is going to be profit. Well, this story came out on io9. It's like, hmm, no wonder it was so low budget. The animators of Sausage Party are speaking out about intolerable conditions. Uh-oh. Sausage Party has become the surprise hit of a summer sorely lacking in them making almost $37 million on a $19 million budget. Well, now the animators are speaking out about how the film kept the cost down. Stories about horrible working conditions first started coming out in the comments of a Cartoon Brew interview with director Greg Tiernan and Conrad Vernon. Anonymous commenters claimed to have worked on the film flooded the article with complaints about working for Nitrogen Studios. The production costs were kept low because Greg would demand people work overtime for free. If you wouldn't work late for free, you were your work would be assigned to someone else who would stay late or come in on the weekend. Some artists were even threatened with termination for not staying late to hit a deadline. Almost half the animation team was not credited. The team believed in the in this film and poured their hearts and souls into it. Despite this, more than half of it was not credited. You can see the full team on IMDb, which contains 83 people, and I'm certain there are some missing. The film's credits, however, only contains 47. All of the comments are truth, or maybe rather written too lightly. I personally know and witnessed many other incidents during the production, such as an open letter to the clients, and how Greg threatened artists for it. I cannot put more details because I'm scared of revealing my identity and I really want to keep working in the industry. Sickening how one can brag about production costs when he was the one who demanded the artist work for free, otherwise get fired. Wow. How about that, huh? Cheap bastards. So, the film's going to make a lot of money, I guess. Uh, I, I haven't seen it. Bill did, and he said it was awful. So, there you go. Uh... I'm just curious. Let's see what it is. Sausage Party has an 82% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Huh. Interesting. Guys, some Star Wars news. John Williams will return to score Star Wars Episode Eight. Iconic composer and Star Wars legend John Williams will return to score the eighth installment. Williams told the crowd at a live show in Boston that after seeing an early cut of the film, he had signed on to score the movie. Did he really? He was just like, I don't know. Let me watch it first. Williams apparently added that he agreed to take the position after Lucas Pre Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy offered it to him because he was enchanted by Daisy Ridley's portrayal of Ray and didn't want another composer to handle her scenes. Williams recently scored The Force Awakens. Oh, he did? Oh, okay. 
Thanks a lot, article. Directed by J.J. Abrams. Oh, is that who directed that? Oh, okay. But did not take on the upcoming Star Wars anthology film, Rogue One. Instead, composer Alexandre Desplat, known for Argo, The King's Speech, and Godzilla, will work with director Gareth Edwards on that film. I'm sure he's already doing it. Williams will work with director Ryan Johnson on scoring episode 8 and told the Boston crowd that he'll be working on the score next month. The film will once again star Ridley, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Adam Driver, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, and will pick up where The Force Awakens ended. Oh, wow. Thanks, article. It'll pick up after that movie ended. Wow. I would have no idea of that. Thank you. Good God. Do you think they're just like, oh, and word quota filled. Yes, there we go. Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, wait, what else can I put in here? Uh, John Williams also scored uh, uh, the rest of the Star Wars movies. Oh, now it's qu- filled. Quota filled. No, Jason, come on. That's the wrong bomb sound. Why do we get it wrong every time? It's ridiculous. Let's see. What about this? Yeah, there we go. That's insanely loud. Okay, I'm really getting annoyed with this story. Uh, It's about the new Stephen King's It movie. Behold, Pennywise the Clown's eerie costume from Stephen King's It. Okay, and it's this picture of a clown, like, looking forward, like, (laughs) and it's supposed to be scary. I got to tell you one thing, guys. Doesn't look scary to me. Looks like someone trying to look scary. It's, you know, like, ooh, ooh, it's a clown, ooh, it's so scary, whatever. Imagine this staring at you from inside the concrete chamber of a storm drain. Yeah, I am. You know what I would do? Keep walking. Wouldn't care. We've already gotten a close-up of Pennywise the Clown from the new film version of Stephen King's It out September 8, 2017. But here we step back to a fuller view of the creature that likes to take the form of a leering, sinister clown. (laughs) Bill Skarsgård is playing the ageless supernatural beast who feeds on the fear of children. And it's clear that director Andy Muschietti, the guy who directed Mama, is steering away from the modern baggy-suited rainbow-hued clown for something bit more archaic. For that, the filmmaker relied on Emmy-winning costume designer Janie Bryant who's worked on such shows as Deadwood and Mad Men, who crafted a form-fitting suit that draws upon a number of bygone times, among them medieval, renaissance, Elizabethan, and Victorian era. Shut up! It's friggin' clown costume! There's a classic harlequin quality to the elegant red lines, drawing up his cheeks like fangs to bisect with his eyes. In this new image, we can more clearly see the fissures in the cakes on makeup atop his dome brow, resembling the sutures of, in the plates of a skull. We even get a hint of his yellow buck-toothed smile. Or might that be something sharper? Oh, sharper. I'm sorry. Getting a little too into it. His neck is frilled by a thick, puffy collar, like a rough from the late 16th century. And here's where we... Guys, it's a friggin' picture of a clown. Why are you going into this much detail describing it? But anyway, every part of the costume is meant to suggest something both ancient and disturbed. The interview goes on. 
the pleading is actually fortuny pleading, which gives an almost crepe-like effect. Bryant says it's a different technique than we used it uh, than Elizabethans would do. It's more organic. I'm just going to keep going. It's more sheer. It has a whimsical, floppy quality to it. It's not a direct translation of a rough or a whisk, which were two of the callers popular during the Elizabethan period. Oh, do tell me more. For Pennywise, there's no need to stay faithful to any era's fashions. He's a manifestation of what an immortal supernatural being thinks of as a clown, an amalgamation of various styles it finds appealing. Or maybe he's just thinking of a toy that once belonged to a child he devoured. There's almost a doll-like quality to the costume. The pants being short, the waistline, the high waistline of the jacket, and the fit of the costume is a very important element. It gives the character a childlike quality. Even the go- Shut up! Why are you still talking about this? Even the gloves are so tight and seamless, they make his hands look like porcelain. At 26, Skarsgård is a much younger Pennywise than Tim Curry, who was in his mid-40s when he played the role in a horrible 1990 TV movie. I'm sorry, guys. Is it really that good? The costume accentuates his youth. But sure, you know, Tim Curry was great in it. Uh, if you look at the sleeves, there are two puffs off the shoulder. He's still talking about this. Still and the biceps, and again on the bloomers. I wanted to have it an organic gourd or pumpkin kind of effect, Bryant says. That includes the peplum at the waist, the flared skirt-like fabric blossoming from below his doublet. Doublet? I don't what it, it helps exaggerate certain parts of his body. The costume is very nipped in the waist, and with the peplum... What, what is this word right here? Peplum. Peplum and bloomers as an expansive silhouette. Um, wait, what is this one? Doublet. Oh, okay. See, I'm, we're learning, guys. Uh, it's all aimed at creating a subliminal suggestion of a creature with long, lanky limbs, a head and neck like a... What the hell? Cephalothorax. And a bulbous arachnoid abdomen. But this creature is walking upright and calling to you with a fistful of balloons. The main color of its costume is a dusk, dusky gray, but with a few splashes of color. The pom-poms are orange. And then with the trim, this guy, this guy never gets interviewed about his costumes. <laughs> it's like, I just wanted, just show us the clown picture, dude. Oh my God. He's still talking about it. Oh my God. Uh, just please, uh... Now, check out the first full-body glimpse of the child-eating monster known as Pennywise the Clown in the upcoming remake of Stephen King's It. But Pennywise certainly isn't your average clown, and he's got a whole new look to prove it. Costume designer Janie Bryant told EW, quote, The costume definitely incorporates all of these otherworldly past lives, if you will. He's definitely a clown from a different time. While this isn't the colorful costume made famous by Tim Curry, this version of the creature is definitely more apt to haunt you from the darkest corners of any kid's room. You guys better <laughs> double check on your bed tonight for monsters. Uh, for kiss my ass. Okay, well, anyway, let's move on. Uh, glad I read that story. 
Okay, guys, get excited. I know you've loved all the DC films so far. First, we had Batman vs. Superman. Yes! Then we had Suicide Squad rocking! And now we're going to have a Flash solo film. But guess what? Cyborg is going to appear in the Flash solo, al- solo album? Solo film! <laughs> uh, if you're wondering, that's the black guy who's like a robot dude. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, he was in the new Teen Titans. I don't know why he's in the Justice League. Didn't they have other characters or something? But anyway, the fastest man alive and the uh, robotiest man alive. <laughs> oh, this article's already hilarious, guys. Sorry, I don't know Cyborg's tagline. Does he have one? I don't think he's ever gotten one. A few months ago, Batman vs. Superman producer Deborah Snyder mentioned in an interview that we'd be seeing Cyborg pop up in The Flash, the Scarlet Speedster's upcoming solo film directed by Rick Famuyiwa and starring Ezra Miller as Barry Allen. Now, Variety says they've confirmed the news with their own sources. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. A few months ago, they told us this? And now you're telling it us again, and it's supposed to be news? And now you're confirming it. Like, they were lying previously? So now this is a new news story. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, uh, the, uh, just the, this appearance is designed to prime the pump for Cyborg's own solo film, which everyone's going to rush out to, uh, which is currently scheduled to be released in 2020. Way in the future, we'll have flying cars by then. That's four years from now, so who knows? A lot can change between then and now. This plan would certainly jive with DC's established pattern of introducing characters in small spotlight roles in other movies before spinning them off into their own films. Batman v Superman featured Wonder Woman ahead of her solo film. Uh, Yeah, we know. God, forget it. This story sucks. Look look forward to Cyborg, okay, guys? Now, here's some exciting TV news that we can all get excited about. Forget those movie stories. TV is where it's at, man. This is a golden age of television. This is where... There's new the TV shows are better than movies. Varsity Blues TV series eyed at CMT Country Movie t- wait Country wait CMT Country Music Television yeah Country Music Television that's it. Seventeen years after James Vanderbeek uttered those five immortal words, why can't I talk? I like want the sentence to be something else other than it is. But seventeen years after James Vanderbeek uttered those five immortal words, I don't want your life. CMT is eyeing a TV version of Varsity Blues. Oh, you mean like Friday Night Lights, maybe? Per our sister site, Deadline, CMT has ordered a script for a potential series based on a 1999 football movie. On the 1999 football movie, the film's original writer, W. Peter Illiff, will also write the small screen adaptation. Paramount TV will produce. Varsity Blues starred Vanderbeek as Jonathan Mox Moxon, a Texas high school quarterback with big dreams of attending Brown University. The film also starred John Voight, Paul Walker, and Scott Kahn. Yeah, you guys excited? Uh, it's called Friday Night Lights, okay? The only thing I can remember about that movie is uh, there's this weird scene where 
the teacher wants wait do you guys remember that uh james vanderbeek like gives every name he can think of for a penis and it was supposed to be funny but it was more disturbing than anything uh let's check this out mr moxon are you here with us the male action Mm -hmm. uh pitching a tent Sporting wood, bicycles formed, marches on. Oh, Jonathan. Stiff, stiffy, Mr. Mortis. Rigor Mortis is set in. Flesh rocket, uh, Jack's Magic Beanstalk, Tall Tommy, Mushroom on a Stick, Mr. Mushroom Head, Purple Headed Yogurt Slinger, and uh, Pedro. Pedro? Mm-hmm. There you go, guys. They want to make a TV show out of that. (laughs) All right, guys. The writers of Guardians of the Galaxy, this is so funny, and Gravity Falls are in talks for a Pokemon live-action movie. That's right. The upcoming live-action Pokemon movie is based on Nintendo's Detective Pikachu game. Variety is reporting that Nicole Perlman of Guardians of the Galaxy and Alex Hirsch of Gravity Falls are in talks to pen the script for the Pokemon film. You already told us that. Why are you telling us this again? The film is being developed by Legendary, who have been in a bidding war for the rights to the franchise for years. But the process seemed to slow down for a period of time. It wasn't until the release of, guess what, guys? Niantic's Pokemon Go that the Legendary Legendary pushed for a faster purchase. There's not much known about what Legendary has in store for the live-action adaptation, including who the studio studio is eyeing for the film or how it will incorporate the actual Pokemon into the film. But the project is... They're just tired. The writers, of course, they're not going to have it. I'm sorry, guys. I'm being a a little touchy this week. Great Detective Pikachu, The Birth of a New Duo, features a version of the Pokemon that fans of the series won't be accustomed to seeing. Not only is the yellow creature incredibly stylish in the new game, which is currently unavailable to purchase in North America, but Pikachu is also quite the little chatterbox. Alright, regret reading that. Alright, new story. Um, Guys, a new Resident Evil 7 video returns. Whoa. Video returns players to its horror roots. I guess I should have finished that. There's still quite a bit unknown about Capcom's upcoming zombie survival game, Resident Evil 7 Biohazard. But today, the studio released a new trailer that highlights some of the gameplay. The trailer focuses on a character named Mia as she explores a creepy house where the infected are running amok. Although players won't get to take on Mia in the game itself, The found footage style tape does give some information about the world they'll be able to explore. For example, the trailer confirms that the house players were able to explore in the demo is a plantation in Louisiana run by Jack and Marguerite Baker. The latter of the two makes an appearance in the trailer, and it's pretty obvious she ain't a fan of having unannounced visitors appear at her doorstep. The trailer also confirms that Capcom will be returning to the series' roots when it comes to gameplay, focusing on traditional exploration puzzles that fans of the original titles will appreciate. Resident Evil's classic inventory system will also make a return to Biohazard. Resident Evil 7 Biohazard is set to be released on January 24th 
on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and Windows PC. The game will also be available in full VR for Sony's highly anticipated PS4 add-on, PlayStation VR. Why would you do that? Let's check out the trailer. I'm sure it's not scary. Come on. Whatever. Ain't scared of nothing. Alright, it's now starting to play, and go. Oh, it's beginning just like the Cloverfield. Ethan, if you find this, I know I can't expect anything from you. I don't, I don't know what happened. What's going on? There's so much that you need to know. Okay, it's a girl hiding and she sees someone in the distance with one and tortures him. We're in the girl's point of view, running down a pathway. You can hear in the background, this is definitely like in the bayou. Okay. Just running it through some doors. Okay, I can already tell I don't want to play this. <laughs> okay, just... Okay. She is going up to a doorway. And it shuts on its own. Okay, it's just sneaking the other way. This house is all falling apart. It's the whole middle floor is... Collapsed. I don't want to play this anymore. She's sneaking down a hallway. It's, it's really scary, you guys. Here comes that pl- person through the door. Okay, she's hiding. She's peeking around a box. You can see the the ladies walking by with a lantern. For some reason, she doesn't want this lady at the lantern to see her. Looks like she's... She's going to keep going through the door. Oh, thank God she's leaving. I cannot play this game! Oh, my God. Okay, she's gone. Safe to walk around now, right? (laughs) Oh, it's cutting to a different scene in the game. Oh, this looks like a puzzle type of room with a lantern or something. Oh shit. There's a lady again. Hide. Dude, I would just jump in the water and get eaten by a gator, man. I'd rather do that. There's the lady with the lantern. The lady with the lantern's coming closer. Is that lady blind? She must be hard to see. You know, like, her vision's really poor. That's why she can't see you. Okay, now it looks like you're in the cellar or something. There's candles everywhere. Somebody closed up the way out. No! Oh, the candles just went out. And Resident Evil 7. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> that looks creepy as hell, man. Some creepy old lady looking for you as you sneak around a haunted house. No, thanks. But guys, can't wait to play that, huh? I love Resident Evil. Resident Evil 1, Resident Evil 2, Resident Evil Code Veronica. And I, I stopped after that. I think I played... There was the one in between... Resident Evil 2 and Veronica is some kind of like 
Resident Evil. What was that called? I can't remember. But um, that was it. Okay, guys, here's some TV news. The DC comedy Powerless, that's going to be a new sitcom on NBC. It's about these people who work in an office um, in a world where DC superheroes exist. It sounds like a cool idea. If you ever wondered how NBC might sustain a powerless comedy set within the DC universe, its showrunner is left to wonder as well. Uh Uh-oh. Reports confirm Ben Queen has also departed the superhero-adjacent insurance comedy ahead of production, owing it to differences with Warner Brothers. The Hollywood Reporter reports that Queen's departure reportedly stems from a mutual decision between he and NBC and Warner Brothers. Let's see. Mortal Man against NBC and Warner Brothers. Who's going to win this fight? (laughs) TV chalked up to that old standby of creative differences. Production had intended to begin at August's end in advance of the mid-season premiere, but will now be postponed to find a new showrunner. So reads the power... Powerless synopsis. Oh, well, you know, this is so apropos. The guy was powerless to stop his firing, basically. Powerless is the story of Emily, played by Vanessa Hudgens, a young insurance adjuster specializing in regular people coverage against damage caused when superheroes and supervillains treat the city like their own personal battleground, taking care of insurance needs one by one. Emily and her team of co-workers might not have any superpowers, but they are out to make a difference in people's lives and prove that you don't have to be powerful. You don't need to have powers to be powerful. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. Firefly favorite Alan Tudyk will play Dell, Emily, Vanessa Hudgens, superior Dell, as well as company's owner's son and power mad disastrous dictator of a boss while community. I don't understand any of this. Okay, Alan Tudyk's in it, Vanessa Hudgens in it, Danny Pudi from Community's in it, and Christina Kirk is in it. We don't really know. We don't need to know their names because it doesn't mean anything until we watch the show. I don't care who is Peter or Jackie or whatever. But, uh, yeah, the showrunner's already out, and the show hasn't premiered yet. Yeek! Okay, this has got to be... This can't be real. Rumor. Deadpool 2's unexpectedly eyeing Kyle Chandler for the role of Cable. Now, Kyle Chandler, it's Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights. I don't see this as really happening. Here's some news that'll make you raise an eyebrow. An interesting rumor regarding Deadpool 2 began circulating over the weekend, specifically regarding the casting of Cable, the villainous character teased in the in, in the Deadpool post-credits scene. Stephen Lang, Dolph Lundgren, and Ron Perlman have all tossed their hat in the ring for the part. But if this new report is true, then Fox may be taking a slightly different approach to the character. During the latest episode of Meet the Movies Press, Jeff Snyder revealed that there's been one name mentioned repeatedly in connection to the role of Cable, Kyle Chandler. Yes, as in that Kyle Chandler, the former Friday Night Lights star and everyone's favorite imaginary dad. It's certainly not the most obvious choice for Cable, the silver-haired muscular mutant who appeared opposite Deadpool in a comic book series that ran for 50 issues. Stephen Lang would be the more obvious choice. And though the Avatar star lobbied for the Deadpool role, his commitment to James Cameron's sequels has taken him out of the running. He died! What? Ron Perlman and Dolph Lundgren have also expressed interest in playing Cable, 
And both of those guys definitely took the part. Stephen Lang doesn't need to be in the Avatar sequels. He died. That'd be so silly. But if Fox is going for someone like Kyle Chandler, perhaps the studio is looking to subvert expectations. Um, no. I'm going to go ahead and turn that down. No. I love Kyle Chandler. Bad casting. No. I forbid it. Okay. Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan series officially a go in Amazon starring John Krasinski. Woohoo! Amazon is officially taking Jack Ryan back to the beginning. The streaming video servants announced Tuesday that it has ordered Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, a drama focusing on the author's CIA analyst character at the start of his career. If that sounds familiar to me, to you, it's because news of the straight... T- okay, start over. Jason, stop. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because news of the straight to series order first broke in September. God, I still, I can't, I, <laughs> as previously poor, reported, Jesus, the offices, John Krasinski will play the titular hero. That's right. Titular. And the drama which, per the logline, follows an up-and-coming CIA analyst thrust into a dangerous field assignment for the first time. The 10-episode series follows Ryan as he uncovers a pattern in terrorist communication that launches him into the center of a dangerous gambit with a new breed of terrorism that threatens destruction on a global scale. The project is co-created by Lost Vets Carlton Coos and Graham Rowland, who executive produce alongside... Michael Bay, Brad Fuller, Lindsay Springer, Andrew Foreman, Mace Newfield. You guys know who those people are? Neither do I. The series action will be based on the idea that Coos and Roland developed and will not be a direct adaptation of the novels. We're excited to add the Jack Ryan Global franchise to our robust originals pipeline, Roy Price, head of Amazon Studios, said. Our customers will enjoy a compelling adaptation of the action-packed spy thriller book series, further raising the bar for the quality level storytelling that has made Prime Video a leading destination for content. Jack Ryan, who eventually becomes president in Clancy's novels, has been played in films by Alec Baldwin, Harrison Ford, Ben Affleck, and Affleck and Chris Pine. Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan will be produced by Paramount Television. Oh, you know, I'm looking forward to that. I like John Krasinski. He's cool. And uh, I really like the series uh, Bosch on Amazon. It's the only one I've watched on there. I've watched uh, some of the pilots and stuff, but I haven't really gotten into any other series. Uh, But even though I've heard some are good, I'll, I'll get around to it. Now, this is a weird story. Uh, Everyone knows who pays attention to any of the video game stuff is that Konami fired uh, Hideo Kojima, the creator of Metal Gear. Well, they just announced that they're making a new Metal Gear game called Metal Gear Survive. A new Metal Gear game is in development at Konami. Metal Gear Survive, a four-play co-op title set to launch next year. Metal Gear Survive, due on PS4, Windows, and Xbox One, takes place in an alternate timeline set after Metal Gear Solid Ground Zeroes. Metal Gear Solid 5 Ground Zeroes, the prequel to Metal Gear Solid 5, the Phantom Pain... Wait, what? 
Metal Gear Solid 5 Ground Zeroes, Metal Gear Solid 5 Phantom Pain. The trailer hints that familiar characters like Big Boss could return. Uh, okay. Running on the Fox engine, Survive will pit up to four players against zombified enemies whom they'll have to survive. Like previous Metal Gear games, they'll have to be stealthy about it. A press release also confirms new weaponry will be at players' disposal. We'll learn more about the game this week at GamesCon. Okay, if a game without Hideo Kojima who created it, why would you want to play that? It's pretty lame. Lame sus. Oh well, let's check out the trailer. Peggy 18. Who's that? Whoa. Lots of battles and stuff. Quick cut. Okay. And already lost interest. Cool. Okay. Titanfall 2 open beta begins this week, guys. If you love Titanfall, you're going to love Titanfall 2. Developer Respawn Entertainment will run an open multiplayer beta for the first-person shooter over two weeks in August. This weekend will mark the first phase of the beta with two modes playable on two maps from Friday through Sunday, August 21st. The beta will also allow players to try out a new feature called Networks, which is Titanfall 2's version of Clans. The first mode, Bounty Hunt, is a 5-on-5 offering that is new for Titanfall 2. The two teams face off against each other as well as the Remnant fleet, whatever that means, and must deposit their points at the bank between waves without dying. Oh, like their paychecks? Uh, I don't understand. But anyway, if you guys want to play this, check it out. (laughs) I wouldn't mind. Oh, by the way... um. Titanfall Beta will only be available on PS4 and Xbox One, not Windows PC. Respawn explained yesterday that it is concerned about PC players unearthing campaign spoilers, and also said that it's still working on supporting various hardware configurations. Huh, okay. Pretty cool. Well, guys, that's all my news stories for today, but I do have some Rotten Tomatoes stuff going on, right? Uh, not really. Let's check out Rotten Tomatoes. Let's see what comes out this week. We got War Dogs. Uh, the cover is a spoof on Scarface, and it stars Jonah Hill and Miles Teller. Nobody's told Jonah Hill that nobody likes him, apparently. But let's see. Um, it also has Bradley Cooper and Kevin Pollock in it. Michael Phillips at the Chicago Tribune says, Despite all the mortifications and Scorsese-ing, we're left with virtually nothing, except the feeling that a pretty good anecdote has been inflated into a bubble-headed American dream morality tale. Okay. This movie currently has 62% fresh fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, so I could have sworn it was not good yesterday, but it's gone up. That means 18 people fresh, 11 people rotten. How is that? Seven more people have said it's good. Does 62% sound right at that? I don't know. Here's another bad review. This one by Mara Reinstein of Us Weekly. 
Even if you're not aware of this real-life story, you'll recognize the well-worn narratives of dudes who hustle their way to the top, only to see it all fall apart in a spectacular fashion. Okay? Brian Truitt of USA Today says, The Wolf of Wall Street hinted at the great work Hill can do with the right antagonistic role. The war And War Dogs lets him steal the movie at gunpoint, going full wannabe gangster, shooting off his mouth, or an AK-47 with equal precision. Mm, I don't know. I'm going to skip this movie. Peter Canavese of Groucho Review says, Captures something of a runway modern greed. Runaway modern greed. I don't know why I can't read today. Played out as a bro movie from bro stars and a bro filmmaker. But might have been a fresh classic of political satire instead of a crime comedy that plays as a sub-Scorsese riff. Yikes. Roger Moore says, fitfully amusing but prepackaged, tone deaf, and gratifyingly glib considering the subject matter. Yee. Ben Hur. This new Ben Hur movie is coming out, starring Jack Houston. If you don't know who that is, he's the guy from uh, Boardwalk Empire. It also has Morgan Freeman in it. I don't know. Watching the trailer, I was just like, this looks like a made-for-TV movie. It doesn't look that great. Um, let's see who directs it. Directed by Timur Bekmembetov. Bekmembetov. Um, it's 33% rotten. Four fresh reviews. Eight rotten. What has the passing of an almost six decades given us? A fresh take on Ben Hur. Okay, start over, Jason. Jesus. What has the passing of almost six decades given us? A fresh take on Ben-Hur that is more noble, dweeby, and neutered than a Sunday school in South Dakota, says Joe McGovern of Entertainment Weekly. Stephen Witte of the Newark Star-Ledger says, Not only does this new version not stand out from the others, it can't stand on its own. Wow. Robert... Abel of The Rap says, Even in this fertile age for popular Christian-themed multiplex fare, it's unlikely to supplant film buff's memories of the epic 1925 and 1959 versions, nor to create any new converts to its loud, blocky, ADD-minded fusion of pulp and pulpit. Wow. David Ehrlich of IndieWire says, The good news is that the story of Ben-Hur is so rock-solid that not even the director of Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter can screw it up completely. Oh, that's who that is. Okay. I knew his name sounded familiar. Owen Gleiberman of Variety says, Ben-Hur is an oddly lackluster affair, sludgy and plodding, photographed in a nondescript medium close-up, an epic that feels like a miniseries served up in bits and pieces. Todd McCarthy of The Hollywood Reporter says, What were they thinking? (laughs) Tim Grierson of Screen International says, An epic tale of revenge and forgiveness with a junk food center. This remake offers robust spectacle and some decent performances, but the director of Wanted proves not the ideal filmmaker to capture this story's more nuanced emotional range. Minus five stars! It sucks! Matt Pridge of Metro says, The big centerpiece, the super-duper mega chariot race, is only disappointing in the sense that it's almost the same as the famous one. Adding 
GoPro insert shots doesn't constitute an improvement. <laughs> you got that right, Matt. Also, David Zistipulajak of Hey You Guys says... If you want a fun action-fueled movie, Ben-Hur is just for you. But when comparing to its epic historical counterpart, which is rather hard to avoid doing, then it regrettably leaves a lot to be desired. So, okay, take that what you will. But also, guys, big animated movie coming out. Kubo! Friggin' Kubo and the Two Strings, man! Every, every movie I've seen this summer has had a Kubo trailer or a special scene to Kubo in it. And I mean, it doesn't matter if it's rated R, PG-13, whatever. There's always Kubo. Before Suicide Squad, Kubo. Before Jason Bourne, Kubo. Before Star Trek, Kubo. Before everything, Kubo. Kubo, 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 Kubo. So, it's finally coming out. <laughs> and it's 91% fresh on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. So, that sounds cool. Let's see what Stephen Witte of the Newark Star Ledger says about this. Much as the small fry will enjoy this, there's even more that you'll love. Wait, wait, wait. Start that over. Much as the small fry will enjoy this. Oh, he's talking about children. Okay. Much as the small fry will enjoy this, meaning your kids... There's even more that you'll love, meaning adult. Okay, I deciphered it. Jake Cole of the Associated Press says, The handcrafted textures and wry self-awareness of Kubo and the two strings make Knight's film resolutely its own tale, and one that folds into its own exotic shape. Okay, does that mean you liked it? Uh, Michael Rechstaffen of Hollywood Reporter says, Kubo is an eye-popping delight that deftly blends colorful folklore with gorgeous origami-informed visuals to immersive effect. Okay, that sounds like you like it. Let's see what Rocky Mirkanadani of New York Daily News says. Be prepared to cry. It's rare that animation can stir up such deep emotion, but it'll happen sometimes more than once. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Leah Greenblatt of Entertainment Weekly says, First time director Travis Knight. He served as a lead animator on Laker's previous three... Everyone's just British, I don't know. <laughs> ...has given Kubo a gorgeously tactile look full of lavish depth and detail and an engaging cast of characters. Uh-oh, there's a bad review, though. Laura Clifford of Reeling Review says... Like a president, CEO, and lead animator, Travis Knight makes his directorial debut, leaning on his visual talent with a lumpy original Japanese folklore-inspired story from Shannon Tindall and Mark Hames that lacks emotional resonance. The only part of this entire thing was review was lacks emotional resonance. The rest of it was who worked on the film. Okay, Luke Y. Thompson of The Nerdist says... So while the movie is a visual feast, just as you expect, it's a story It's nonetheless fairly predictable fantasy quest fare. I give it, uh, 12,000 stars! I loved it! No, oh, okay, I didn't see him going there. Chris Struckman says that Kubo is one of the best animated films I've ever seen. If Laika continues to produce films of this quality, we'll have a worthy successor to the great Studio Ghibli. Ghibli. Ghibli Ghibli. All right. Well, that's cool. 
Okay, one more, guys. Dustin Putman. That's right, guys. The Dustin Putman. We all know who this guy is. He's going to give us his take on Kubo and the two strings. I can't wait to hear what Dustin Putman has to say. Here we go, guys. Get ready. I know we've been waiting to hear what Dustin Putman has to say. Here we go. Fantastical and innovative. Distinctively vivid and reflective. Kubo and the two strings is destined to deepen and beautify all the more with subsequent viewings. It's an exciting prospect to see what Laika will dream of next. That's my take, Dustin Putman. Well, Dustin, <laughs> bravo, sir. You have the review of the day. Very cool. Um, there's other movies coming out, but I don't know. What's coming out the week after? What do we have to look forward to? Don't Breathe, Hands of Stone, South Side with You, Mechanic Resurrection. Mechanic Resurrection? Uh, well, I guess that's it. I don't know. I really wanted to see Pete's Dragon and never did. <laughs> Putman in the house! <laughs> that's right. He's our new favorite guy, Dustin Putman. I don't even remember his name anymore. Guys, thank you so much for listening to Entertainment Landfill News. I have a ball doing the show. I want to get together with Stephen and Bill soon. We're going to give our whole... We're going to talk all about the history of Entertainment Landfill, Nora Mulberry. We want to play some voicemails on that show. So if you guys would, send me a voicemail to nimpodcast at gmail.com. Just talking about the first time you ever heard Nora Mulberry or Entertainment Landfill and your favorite bits. And it'd be great. It'd be fun. We're going to have a cool get-together and just chill and talk about the show and stuff. And I never have more fun than talking with Bill and Steven. Thank you guys so much for listening. Also, be sure and visit nimpodcast.blogspot.com. There I have all of the shows, uh, previous shows. I'm still loading up um, the... Uh, what is it called? The archive of shows. I've got a bunch on there, like episode one through, am I in the 60s or, yeah, I think so. Episode one through 64 or something. I had, there's a lot of episodes and it takes up a lot of bandwidth, so I can only do a certain amount a month before I top it out. So that's what I've been doing. <laughs> At the Basically, the last day of every month, I see how much bandwidth I have. And then I just upload old episodes until it's at 100% and I can't do anymore. And then I wait till the next month to do it again. I know it's just only. But anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. Also, if you're interested in becoming a patron, go to patreon.com slash landfill. I've been doing something cool on there where I've released the first two chapters of an audio novel. I'm reading a story to you and you get to listen. Patrons get to do that right now. It's not on the regular feed. Only patrons get to listen to it. So if you donate it as little as a dollar, if you become a patron for as little as a dollar a month, you'll get access to that. And I'm going to keep going. I've already been editing chapter three and then I'm going to record that soon. The part that it's crazy though, when you're reading a story... When you're editing it later, every, like, cough, throat clearing, sip of a drink, I'm just like, oh, my God, oh, it's so tedious. <laughs> every time I have to start over. Um, I hope people who listen to that will dig it. It's kind of crazy putting my writing out there. I'm very self-conscious about it, but I hope people dig it. And if you do, let me know because it just encourages me to do more. 
Well, guys, that is our show. I want to thank Brandon, John, and Kai for listening live. Let's see if anybody else is in there. Maybe that's it. Kai, John, Brandon, and somebody elsewhere is listening live. Thank you guys so much. I don't know if I'll see Kubo. I probably will based on uh, Dustin Putman's review. (laughs) And I'll talk about that next time. But, guys, thank you so much for listening. And what are you waiting for? Get out there, watch some movies, play some video games, some No Man's Sky, um, watch some TV shows, and... I'll see you next time. Woo-hoo! Well, guys, that's it. That's the show, and now it's over. What are you going to do with the rest of the day now that you know the news of the world? I'm going to scour the net for some new RAM and maybe hunt down some resources in No Man's Sky. Oh, wait, I can't because the PC version sucks ass and keeps crashing. Oh, well. There's always my collection of choose-your-own-adventure books I have on my virtual Kindle. Peace out. Later, days, suckers. Now this is podcasting.